Good morning and good afternoon and welcome to movie night here at Random Trek. I am your faithful captain, Christopher Ingle, joined as always by my first officer, Brennan, the mystical monarch. Brennan, did you bring the popcorn? I used to believe in the beginnings of podcasts. Now I'm not so sure. Isn't it the end? Or is the end the beginning? Mm, the, be the beginning <laughs> is the end of the beginning. Oh, yes. We will talk a little bit because our movie tonight on the ship uh, is the 2016 sci-fi drama Arrival starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner with Forrest Whitaker. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about this. But as a good captain, I know I usually run the show here and we, we go through this, but as Captain Picard did with Will Riker in Encounter at Farpoint, sometimes... We need to let the first officer take over for a little while. So today, I'm going to let Brennan take over uh, and kind of run the shows. This is one of his favorite films and let him introduce our guests. So, Brennan, take it away. Thank you so much, Captain Sir. So, first off, we have a little bit of sad news we need to discover or discuss. Um, our good friend, Garth McMurray, who probably would have been on the show at some point, uh, passed away on Monday um, after a black dog battle with health problems. And uh, he was a good friend who appeared on all of the various social groups that we belong to, particularly Video Drew and the Let's Get Ready Network. Um, so we just want to give our condolences to his family. And, you know, we, we whether you believe in the afterlife or not, I think the impression he left on us in this life will remain with us forever. And uh, those, we wanted to just make sure that we paid special tribute to him this very uh, sad week and Chris did you have any thoughts on Garth uh, I loved Garth I'm going to miss all his name drops uh, if you knew Garth you knew that Garth knew everybody mm -hmm. and he let you know it and it irritated us we laughed at it and I'm going to miss it greatly that and the man had every Captain America piece of merchandise known to man Mm -hmm. Also miss seeing Cap Shield in the background in every possible location. Indeed. So we are discussing arrival, as Captain Ingle said. But we couldn't do it alone. We need a guest. And one of our guests is stuck in the transporter, brother. So our other guest, our wonderful yeoman, it's Adelia Chamberlain. Hi, Adelia. Guys, how you doing tonight? Good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So, as Captain Engel mentioned, Arrival is a 2016 science fiction film directed by Denis Villeneuve, who you might recognize as the director of Dune, which got moved to next year, and I'm very sympathetic. Me too. Um, this <laughs> film came out in 2016, was nominated 
or eight Academy Awards, winning the award for Best Sound Effects Editing. It is based on the short story, Story of Your Life, the nebula-winning Story of Your Life by Ted Chang. And is one of the great films, I think, of the 2010s and probably the 21st century. So we are going to dive into that today. It is Star Trek adjacent in the sense, and um, we must give credit where credit's due. Our friend Eric Ramirez, uh, Nerd Chronic, who pointed out that it's about communication. Mm -hmm. Star Trek is about communication. And first contact. So let's break it down. We are going to break it down by category. So we're going to start with the plot. Now the plot is different than the story. The plot here is pretty simple. Dr. Louise Banks, played by Amy Adams, must find a way to communicate with an alien species before a war breaks out on Earth. That's really the plot there. Pretty straightforward in that sense. The story is where it gets more interesting. So let's talk really quick about just the plot. The basic building blocks of the story. Odelia, you're our guest. How do you feel about just the plot in general? Um, the plot to me is very much uh, like a lot of alien invasion kind of movies. They come here, what do they want? You know, first contact kind of thing. Um, it's not complicated, but in its simplicity, it allows the story to be told around it, which is much more complicated. And I think that it's a good juxtaposition between the two. Um, but I think it works really well in this movie. Well said. Chris, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, on the surface, the idea aliens come and how we deal with it. This has been done so many times. The day the Earth stood still. And, you know, I, I that's kind of as far back as I think of. But Independence Day and so many others. K-Pax. I mean, lots of movies that deal with aliens coming and how we deal with them. Um you know, but the turnout is always kind of one of two ways. Either they're the bad guys and we've got to stop them, or we're the bad guys. And I really, really love that this movie, right off the bat, you don't really know what way that's going to be with the plot. They don't make that clear at first. And you got to go through this and walk through this with them to to really kind of suss out the nature of this and I, I i like the plot it's simplistic but it works for the overall theme of this movie it, it absolutely works exactly and I, and I think adelia you you hit it on the head that in its simplicity it allows for the story to really fit nicely on the bare bones of the plot and, and as you say chris we have seen this kind of movie this, to me, might be 
one of the best first contact films there's ever been. Yeah. As far as the simplicity, I think it's very interesting. The mm-hmm. Denis Villeneuve is very much a less is more director. He really knows how to keep things from being too complicated. And also, on a visual level, it's very simplistic as well. Mm-hmm. So that, that's our thoughts on the plot. But now we come to the big one, the story. This is where it gets really interesting. So to give us kind of a just a general idea, Dr. Banks and Dr. Donnelly are working with the U.S. military to communicate with the aliens. Twelve alien ships around the world with the various groups interacting to try to figure out how to communicate. Well, tensions start riding high between the groups. Uh, at the same time, as Dr. Banks is trying to communicate with him, he begins experiencing strange feelings that something's wrong. Now, at the beginning of the movie, we presume that Dr. Banks had a daughter who died of some illness. And then, you know, everyone listening here, hopefully you've seen the movie. If you had that, I do not wish to spoil it. So, well, stop this podcast, go watch it, and then come back. So we learn then that as Dr. Banks is understanding the alien language, she eventually reaches a point where she is able to think like them. Probably helped by some kind of telekinesis. Not telekinesis. Um, I think you're muted. Telepathy. Telepathy. She eventually thinks like that. The aliens do not think linearly about time. That we do. They think of time as basically a circle. And she starts to see her life that way. That's the big twist. The daughter we thought died. It wasn't born yet when the story began. We just assumed that she was based on the language of cinema. And of course, eventually she's able to make a breakthrough and save the world. But, but the story is really where it gets interesting. Because as you say, the plot is simple. But then we get into the story, which is much more interesting. And surprising. So, Adelia, what are your thoughts on the story of this film? I absolutely love it. This is one of my favorite twists, if you will, in a movie mm-hmm. that I've ever seen. Um, I'm right with you. Like, when you start this movie, you think, okay, she had a daughter who died. And then as she's working on figuring out this alien language, she's seeing flashbacks to her daughter until the point where you realize oh no, the daughter hasn't been born yet. It's one of the mm-hmm. most shocking twists I think I've I've ever come across. And it's one of my favorite because of the whole, like, to use a phrase from Doctor Who parlance, timey-wimey uh, aspect of this story. Yes. Um, I didn't expect that there was going to be that um, in an 
what is uh, was sold to me as an alien invasion movie mm-hmm. and that just makes it all the more interesting to me um her story of seeing her future while getting to know the man who would be the father of her child while saving the world from a war that these aliens that have arrived these heptapods are not trying to start they are here because they need humanity's help in 3000 years and the only way we can help them in 3000 years is for them to give us what they refer to as the weapon which we learn is their language and um i just find the whole thing i'm big language person i can only speak english but i love the intricacies of language and um so the whole communication and how louise approaches teaching them simple basic words and then getting the communication built up to where they can understand one another is uh, is really something to me and i think it's one of the reasons why i like this movie so much yeah i agree i usually do not talk out loud in movie theaters when the twist happened i said wow out loud in the theater you're absolutely right it is one of the greatest t- twists i think that we have ever seen and let me give a little history lesson here. There is something in cinema called the Kuleshov effect. Lev Kuleshov was a Soviet filmmaker. In the early days of cinema, actually, it might have even been before the Soviet Union, he did an experiment with groups of film watchers. This is before cinema was really a thing. And he would show them images and cut back and forth between them, like editing, and ask them, what does it mean? For example, you would show a clip of a man standing, expressionless, and then cut to a bowl of soup. Cut back to the man, cut back to the bowl of soup. Ask the audience, what does it mean? And they said, he's hungry. So that demonstrated that audiences through the editing are able to discern meaning. So it's very effectively used in this movie because when we see the daughter die at the beginning and then we cut to the present, Dr. thinks she isn't doing anything with her facial expressions. We therefore assume that she is in mourning even though she's done physically nothing to indicate that because of the Kulichov effect that was our assumption Denis Villeneuve is one of the great filmmakers of our time because he's able to turn us on our heads and you're right it is one of the greatest twists I did not see it coming and I still think it might be one of, if not the greatest, twist in film since maybe I am your father. I mean, who knows? So, okay, Chris, what are your thoughts on the story of the film? Um, as someone who is a huge fan of the Twilight Zone, mm. this to me really felt Twilight Zoney in all the good ways. Like, I, I, I'm usually pretty good at predicting the endings to things. I didn't see, because I I went right along with it. I thought, oh, she is sad. She's in mourning. That explains her 
demeanor and her, you know, okay, totally makes sense. But they played that so well that it, it, it kept me guessing and I loved it so much. Um, and, and you're right, uh, uh, Denny Veneuve has got a way here of telling the story that just you go with it, you're going with it, and you don't feel bad. As I was watching it, I felt like this was a combination of a little bit of like the influence of Kubrick in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. There's a very dramatic, there are moments that are very quiet and very long, mixed with a little bit of the Twilight Zone. And I, I I love that work here, uh, you know, and and the use of language, language is a central theme as as an English teacher, as a theater mm. person. I also believe that language can be a unifying structure, even when your language is different. Language is is a barrier and yet also a bridge. And, and, and so in classical music, use a mm -hmm. lot of foreign languages. We don't understand, but it's beautiful. Mm hmm. But this goes beyond language, which I love. It is all about perception. It is how you see things. Mm. It's it's a beautiful, genius theme to play with. Uh, I, and it is so good. So good. I, 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 I just kept saying that as I was watching it. This is so good. This is so good. Uh, and I, we've got other stuff we'll talk about with it. But... Uh, Every element that goes into creating this film with this story, it supports it. It knows when to be quiet. It knows when to add tension. And Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner are just beautiful in here. They have mm -hmm. perfect chemistry, even though in reality, I think during this process, I didn't think they had any chemistry. But that's part of the point. Mm. She, she is a linguist. He's a physicist. She is an artist. He is a mathematician. They are perfect opposites that don't speak each other's language. And yet what we find out in the end is they end up falling in love. They end up creating, you know, all this goes together. Mm -hmm. It's it's such a beautiful film. And, and to be clear, I had never watched this until Brendan said this is the movie we were going to do. Oh, wow. Never oh, wow. saw it. Okay. So this was such a treat to be surprised. I rarely... I'm surprised in a movie. This surprised me. Mm -hmm. You know, it, you mentioned the the artist and and mathematician. Mm -hmm. The end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They communicate with the aliens by combining math and music. Mm -hmm. This is this movie is definitely in the tradition of the great science fiction films. Um, which deal with two major themes. Mm -hmm. And we'll get there in a minute, but I'll just say them now. What it means to be human and what are the mysteries of the universe? What's out there? Um, so let's... I think that when it comes to this story, I think Denis Villeneuve is... He and Christopher Nolan are like two sides of the same coin. Both of their films deal with similar subjects and are presented in similar ways and are good at providing us with interesting twists and turns. And the answers are in plain sight, but we don't see them at first. 
And that's the brilliance of these filmmakers, particularly of Milnub in this case. And I think that this, as far as the story goes, is able to take a first contact story and make it about so much more than that. Any thoughts before we move on? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the story too, and and bringing it to Star Trek, because this is a Star Trek podcast, I really felt like this is also a kind of story that felt like a very, very enterprise-heavy thing. We come across a creature we don't understand. We have to learn to communicate it. And in communication, we learn so much more about ourselves. Think Star Trek 1. In a lot of ways, this is like Star Trek 1. In, we had to learn to talk to V'ger and understand what V'ger was and what its origin is, what its future is, what our future is. you know. And in that process, discovering more about ourselves when Decker joined with V'ger. No one thought that possible, and yet it happened, created a new life. Yeah. Uh, and, and so this, this, very, this, this movie is very Star Trek-y. But like I said, it's also very Twilight Zone, very Kubrick. It's got a lot of influences going for it. A little Tarkovsky, too. Yeah. Adelia, what do, what are your thoughts before we move on? I agree with everything you guys have just said. I mean, I've never seen Star Trek 1, so I can't comment on Chris's comparison there. But <laughs> um, this is very much a story about communication and language. And also, like, one of my favorite scenes when it comes to uh, Louise and Ian is when Ian tells her, you approach language like a mathematician. And that's the first sign I saw it's time I picked up of like, oh, they could they could be a thing. Mm. Um because he's starting to understand her and she takes that as a compliment when she, you know, he's like, I mean it is one. Cause one of the very first things that their first conversation on the helicopter when he, uh, she doesn't have the headphones on, he says something to her. And then she finally puts the headphones on so she can hear him. And he reads the preface of something she'd written about how language is the cornerstone of the world mm-hmm. and then immediately disagrees with her. But by the end of this, by the time we get to that point where he's telling her, you approach language like a mathematician, I can see him starting to understand her her process and her point of view on language. And And I think they have a beautiful connection in this movie. Um, even though you don't actually technically ever really until the very end see them as a couple which i think is a very interesting way to tell a love story very well said um one last thing before we move on which i think is fascinating louise learns to think cyclically Mm -hmm. the movie as a film uses the language of cinema you mess with time. Our perception of time. We see the beginning of the movie and think that's the beginning. But cinema allows you to do those kind of things. You're an audience. To, to make it non-linear. And so it, the genius is it's using the language of cinema to tell a story about language. And one thing that I think is fascinating, the first shot of the movie is out her back porch windows. We then again see that shot for the end of the movie. 
But this time in that shot, she walks into the shot. And this is actually the moment that we presume that their daughter is conceived. So what we thought about as the beginning wasn't the beginning and was the beginning at the same time. Cinema can do that to an audience in, in an amazing way, which fits the theme of the movie perfectly. So let's move on to the characters. It's a fairly small cast. We have Amy Adams. We have Jeremy Renner. We have Forrest Whitaker. We have Michael Stuhlberg, who was in like everything back then. And of course, we have Abbott and Costello. So before we move further, let's talk about the aliens first. Because the heptopods, Abbott and Costello, are characters just as much as the human characters are. So, Chris, what are your thoughts on Abbott and Costello? I love the ambiguity, the fact that we never really get a full view of what they are. That's something that I really enjoy. Like, we're not focused on how they made or what that, you know, we get shadows, glimpses, images, but never a complete and full view. And what that does is it allows us to view them in, in kind of an ambiguous uh, way to where you put the meaning, you put everything into it yourself. So we're not creating a definition of these people as saviors, and they're not. They're here to get our help. You know, so and that's so, very rare in science fiction. Mm -hmm. The the design choice is beautiful. Even in Close Encounters, you had the idea that they rep they represented the Greys. We got kind of that silhouette after yeah. you know, uh, you you got that. Here we didn't have that. Here it was just fogged out all the time. Even when she had um, the final time she went and talked uh, with the aliens and she was kind of in their area, sort of. Dr. Costello after Abbott died, yeah. Yeah, there still wasn't a lot to it. There wasn't, you know, and that's okay. That's what I love about this. They they let us do the talking. They're not doing the talking. We are. Yeah. We're and made if, to fill in the gaps. In fact, uh, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And my earlier comment about Nolan and Delmu being like two sides of the same coin. I love Christopher Nolan. If this had been directed by him, there would have definitely been more of the characters philosophizing to each other instead of the audience doing it. And I mean that as no disrespect to Nolan. I just think that that's what he enjoys doing, which is what they call dialectic, which you might know is when the characters are having the conversation that the audience should be having. But Villeneuve doesn't do that. He lets the audience do the thinking. Now, as far as Abbott and Costello are concerned, I love that they are non-humanoid. They don't have eyes, noses, mouths that we see. Um, the design is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. 
and the way they communicate with like ink, like a squid. That I mean, the design of the aliens is these might be the best aliens ever seen on screen. Mm -hmm. uh, Adelia, what are your thoughts on Abbott and Costello? Well, one of my favorite things about them is that we have that scene where Louise and Ian are teaching them their names are Louise and Ian, and we get <laughs> their writings that Louise assumes is their names, but we never learn what they translate to. Mm. We only know them as Abbott and Costello. I think is because, you know, so many um, alien movies, they have weird, crazy names. I am Zortos. And, I am yeah. <laughs> I, I love that in this one, we don't know what their names actually were. I think that's that's really fascinating. The design is fantastic. I love the way that they communicate. Even the, the sound of them talking, which Louise can't understand in when she's first presented with it. It's kind um, of almost a whale sound. Kind of, yeah. yeah. It's it's very interesting to me that they made the choices that they made with the, with the alien characters. And I think that that's what makes the movie work. Because if you have them show up and they can talk in a basic universal language that we can understand, or at some point they start talking and we get it, like that wouldn't work for this movie. And I think the choices they made with, with Abbott and Costello really make this movie um, work. And, and I love that they look different than each other. They are not uniform yeah. looking. Abbott is tall and skinny. Costello's kind of shorter and funky, therefore why they're called Abbott and Costello. Um, they they visually look different because in a lot of alien movies, they all look the same. Mm -hmm. Look at humans, we do not all look the same. So seeing these two, and I love that it's only two aliens that we see. We don't see the whole group. We just see them. And I love that the characters are a little bit different. But Abbott starts out as being the talker. The film is kind of the shy one. After Abbott is killed, um, Costello sort of has to step up to the plate. And I also love the subtitles that translate their language. Don't translate it into perfect English. Mm -hmm. You know, Abbott is death process. That's an interesting way to say Abbott died. Yeah. So we, we have the aliens who are great characters in themselves. Which is genius that you can take two characters that don't speak, that don't have eyes, mouths, any of that, and we still think of them as characters. Mm -hmm. But then we come to... Uh, We'll talk about Dr. Banks at the end. So let's start at the beginning. Sort of. So let's start with a minor character. I do not know the name of the character. But the soldier boy who goes crazy. Yeah. He is a minor character. Um, not much to say about him other than when I saw the movie, that was the one part of the movie I thought was ridiculous. That the soldier working on the base would listen to weird doomsday podcasts and then sort of kill the aliens. Well, cut to today. Cut to 2023. Cut to the last six years. It's like, um, 
Yes, I could totally see that happening. So what do we think about that particular character arc is that story? What do we think? Uh, Adelia, let's start with you. I actually really love that that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it shows a, a response to aliens arriving on this planet that is realistic to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, if 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 this scenario happened today and we just ended up with 12 vessels around the world, there would be people, and I'm not going to name names, who go on their internet shows or radio shows or whatever and start talking about how we just have to go and destroy them. And that's going to indoctrinate people after a while until somebody goes and tries it. And I just think I mean, that... Heck, we don't need aliens to do that. We've seen it yeah, we. <laughs> Yeah, we we really don't need aliens to do that. But um, I think that that really was a realistic... That's one of the things I loved, is every time we cut to what's going on in the real world, not what's going on in this field in Montana, but what's going on everywhere else, um, it seemed realistic enough to me that I could see that happening if this scenario occurred. You know, people going crazy, looting... Um, a cult thinking that some prophecy has been fulfilled and burning down its, you know, whatever. I I just found all of that to be really fascinating. And I, I think they needed to have something happen on that base because, you know, it's just downtime. You're trying to relax. The only thing that's on is this internet show, like, you get indoctrinated. Totally in his, his wife's totally in a panic about everything. From the sound of that phone call with his wife, I think it sounds like their kid thinks that the monster's going to come kill them. Like, I can totally see that guy just like being like, okay, we got to, th- this is ridiculous. We're teaching him grade school words. Let's, let's just get rid of them and be done with it. And I suppose so that part of the movie really worked for me. Chris, what do you think of that, that particular part of the story? You've got to have some face to the negative opposition. Captain Merckx is his name. You have to have some face to the opposition. Absolutely. I'm reminded of, even though it's a comedy, uh, an episode of the Treehouse of Horror from The Simpsons that parodied Twilight Zone when Kang and Kodos... took the Simpsons and they were going to take them to their world. Yeah. And Lisa thought that Kang and Kodos only wanted to eat them, which is the plot uh, twist in um, the Twilight Zone. But of course, they play on that and it doesn't turn out that way, that Kang and Kodos in that episode only wanted to help humans and to dote upon them, and you know, but they ruin their chances. And so I, I really like when we can have characters that are the dissenting voice, that aren't just um, going with the status quo. Of, of the film that the film sets up because mm-hmm. clearly this film sets up that these aliens are not harmful. They're not, you know, that we are the idiots. It's setting yeah. that up. Yeah. So having though, having a dissenting voice gives us that other side of it. And, and you know what? I hate to say it. I don't entirely blame him. We don't know. We really don't know. And we can't speak to them. Human beings rely so heavily on language that if we can't comprehend or figure it out pretty darn quick, we're more apt to think they're enemies. 
So this yeah, guy is and just also, this young dad. What's mm-hmm. calling? Like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But, you know, his kid is scared stiff. I mean, I, I understand there is some sympathy there. They're just acting the way you would expect a human being in general to act, you know. Yeah. And I don't think it's a matter of destructive nature either. This guy is not a representation of destructive nature. It's a representation of survival and wanting to protect our people, protect my home, protect my kid. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, so then we come really quick. I want to make sure we mention him. Did the Chinese actor Sima as General Shang? I think this guy, even though he only has a few scenes, is fantastic. Um, and I love the storyline with her connecting with him by saying yes. the words his wife had said to him. Which, by the way, what he wife had said to him, they don't subtitle it, but it's war only makes widows. And that's what got him to stand down. I thought that was a choice. So what do we think? I'll start with you, Chris, about General Shang. Um, through most of the film, he really fits the standard uh, view we have of the Chinese right now. Militant, mm-hmm. aggressive, fighting. It's fitting all of the stereotypes. The fact that she was able to talk him down and convince him to listen is really great. Uh, and his performance is wonderful. I love Sima. I absolutely mm-hmm. love him. I've seen him do a lot of other things. Man in the High Castle, yes. for example. Yeah. Yes, but he's also a, a play actor as well. Did yes. a lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein, uh, Flower Drum Song. Actually, he did that Ooh. for years. Yes. Uh, and he he was he was amazing in it, uh, or at least so the reviews say. But mm-hmm. other movies I've seen him in too. The Rush Hour movies. I love him in the Rush Hour movie. He's not that long in it. But I buy it. I like it. He's um, Mulan's father, I believe, in the remake of Mulan. Yes, he is. And he's one of the better sides, I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can think of a couple of other movies. He's mentioned in Million Dollar Arm. That's a fun movie that I like. Nobody talks to. And Aquila the Bee, uh, The Lady Killers is a little fun. Uh, Point is him as an actor. I love him. And the character um, makes sense. And yet in the end the general listens and comes, you know, it, it gives hope. It's not just the Chinese are evil. The Russians are evil. No, there's hope. Yeah. And and I really like that he's able to bring that, that moment when he's actually interacting with her in the future. Yep. When they're talking, I love that moment. There's a genuineness like, Hey, I owe you everything. Thank you. And I love that the future acts just like memory. Mm-hmm. You know how sometimes you can't remember something? It's cloudy, and then all of a sudden it comes to you. Well, this is really cool because she's doing that for the future. And it acts the same way, which is really neat. Mm-hmm. And that it was elliptical in the sense that the general showed him this phone number and told her, This is what my wife said to me, and that what you said to me. And so that's how she knows it because he's able to glean that information because her mind no longer exists in one time. 
Adelia, what are your thoughts on General Shang? I thought he was great. Um, I agree with Chris that he was portrayed as the, you know, sort of Chinese stereotype general, you know, we're going to take military action, hard nose kind of thing until that scene where he's talking to Louise in the future and giving her all the information she needs right at that moment in the present. And I thought it was a great way of showing how Louise's mind uh, works now that she's immersed herself in, in the heptapods language. And I also thought it was great to show a different side of the Chinese general because stereotypes are stereotypes, but they're not applicable to everyone and everything and i think it was important that they did show that like this guy could listen and be reasoned with um i think the way that they portrayed uh that conversation struck me as a little odd the first time i saw it where he's Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. you know telling her i gave you my you called me on my private number and then he just shows her the private number and and then he's like and you told me what my wife said and I just found it a little like, okay, he's like telling her now what she needs to know from back then in a way as though he's telling her in the present, even though it's the future. Yeah. And I, I wondered if there was a, a a conversation had with someone where it was explained to him how she knew the words that his wife had said when mm-hmm. she called him. And so he knew when he finally met her what he had to say to her for the past to have actually happened the way that it did. Well, like he I, understood I, I how her mind worked. And yeah, he's like, he okay, understood. her mind works this way. So in order to avert an international incident, I need to give her this information. Yeah. Yeah, because like, because like she says, like, I called you, didn't I? Like she doesn't know that in that moment in the future when they're talking and he talks her through it the way you would give instructions to someone in the present. And I always found that very interesting. Yeah. Well, for me, this, now again, I like their interaction. I really do. But from a writing standpoint, I found this part to be a little bit deus ex machina. Yeah. And we'll actually get to the screenplay. We need, yeah, yeah, we needed a way to, um, to kind of end it. We needed a way to resolve everything to get it. And it just, it, it felt a little bit like, uh, not contrived, but like, oh, you know, oh, look, he gives her the number in the future. It is some a little something that bothered me. It's not a major thing, but I did felt that it was a little bit of a cop-out, just, just a hair. Uh, but their interaction was good. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, we'll get to the screenplay in a minute, but it's interesting how... Even in a masterpiece, you could still have one or two things that are a little odd. Um, so then we come to a another like small character, and that's Agent Halpern of the CIA, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, who Michael Stuhlbarg was in everything in the 2010s, I swear. So, as always, we have the CIA guy. A pain in the in the rear, because you know, it's gonna be a CIA jerk. It's a small role, and love Michael Stuhlberg, particularly when he plays jerks. He's really good at that, and and I do like that he's, he's, he's kind of an idiot, actually, I think he is. 
So not a character that really there's really a lot to talk about other than other than in a movie it's funny that you have a movie about communication you've got to have the one guy who doesn't listen because that's all part of what communication is if you have the people who listen and the people who don't listen and in his case I don't think he ever listens <laughs> so let's real quick talk about what do we think about Agent Alfred Chris, uh, needed, but I I don't think it adds much much otherwise. In fact, I I will say overall, the the care the supporting characters here are probably the weakest part of the film. Now that's not to say they're all bad. Yeah, the focus is Amy Adams. The focus is Jeremy Renner. Yeah, that's where it needs to be, and that's fine. These guys serve their purpose. But I don't think they do anything else special that makes me go, wow, remember what they did? Like, Shang serves, uh, the, the general serves a purpose, right? It's the deus ex machina. It's it's to end it. That is his purpose. You know, uh, um, Forrest Whitaker, he is, he is the voice of the military. He's, you know, but he's on their side, you know. But otherwise, all the development comes from those two, especially Amy Adams. So for me, he's fine. He's okay, but it's nothing special to write home. A little forgettable. Yeah. And what do you think, Adelia, that Agent Hawthorne? Yeah, I agree with that, but I also think it's important to show that there is a high-ranking official there helping make the decisions that doesn't trust anything that they're doing. Um, even though he's not going to do something like the the captain did that uh, you know was trying to you know, take out the aliens, he's ready to listen to the Secretary of Defense or whoever tells him to send in troops to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to to show that in this because in these situations there is going to be somebody that just doesn't trust anything that's going on with these aliens and wants them and probably wants them gone. Um so he serves that purpose, but yeah, he's he's pretty forgettable otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. You might be the most forgettable of the characters. Um, we then go to the first Whitaker as Colonel Weather. And one of the things I think is interesting about Colonel Weather is that even though he's the military type, you usually think the military is going to be the problem. Which it is with Captain Marks, that's true. But it's the CIA guy who's more of the problem than the military commander because Weather is at least willing to listen and willing to allow Dr. Banks and Dr. Donnelly to do what they need to do to get through to the aliens. He's not really the trigger-happy type. It's surprising that a military guy in a sci-fi movie who is willing to listen I think Forrest Whitaker does a pretty good job here. Not a super memorable role. But anytime Forrest Whitaker shows up, even if it's a small role, he does command a certain level of authority when he's on screen. That we as the audience just listen because it's Forrest Whitaker. He's got a certain screen presence. So Chris... um, Everybody mentioned it a little bit, but give us your thoughts on Colonel Winter. 
He's a more compassionate military leader than I ever would have thought. Uh, he listens to them. He gives them a chance. He gives them the, the latitude they need to do their job. He trusts them as experts. Far too often in these kinds of movies, the military serves the aggressive hand. He is not the aggressive hand. He does what he's told when he needs to, but he still trusts them and gives them the time to do it. And so he's a great ally in this. Uh, and I thought after a couple points, he might have been gone and we would have been we would have replaced with the mean leader who's gonna could maybe the CIA was gonna run it. No, no, that never happened. He just supported them the whole way through and, uh, you know, kind of gave them the avenues they needed. He was a good character to have. I, I really liked Forrest Whitaker doing this. It was a nice change to see a military man not be uh, the the force that you normally would expect in an alien movie. Very well said. Delia? Yeah, I think uh, Forrest Whitaker was great in this. I liked his character a lot. I could tell that his character was going to be different than what I was expecting when he came back to Louise um, after the initial approach about uh, what these aliens were saying. And he had actually asked the other guy the Sanskrit word for mm -hmm. war. What does it mean? And he didn't trust that answer. And he trusted the one that Louise gave him. Um, it showed me that he had a thought that, okay, she knows what she's talking about. And I liked that there was that level of trust with Louise and Ian throughout the whole thing, even when Louise had to lie to him to get him to understand why things had to be done that way. When she brings up the, the kangaroo story. Um, yeah. <laughs> which it's a great I think story. It's a great story about how all, language can be misunderstood. That story. <laughs> yeah. About how, how language can be misunderstood. Yeah, not true at all. Um, but uh I think that he did a great job in this movie. He was the right kind of ally for them to have. He was doing his job. He was doing the military things. He was evacuating when they told him to evacuate and, and all of that. But when he needed to listen to them, he did. And I, I thought that was good to have. Mm -hmm. Well said. And then we come to the more of the meat of the movie. Because the one thing about this film is that the characters outside of Dr. Banks are not as important, I think, as the story being told. When we come out of Dr. Ian Donnelly, played by Jeremy Renner, who I think is is pretty good. Uh, he is, actually, I'd say he's quite good. Um, getting to see him step outside the MCU and do something a little bit more dramatic uh, he is the closest thing to comic relief that this movie has. Throwing in a few silly one-liners, but hey. Somebody had to break the tension. Uh, Dr. Donnelly, I think that he is believable as this mathematician and physicist. Sometimes when you hire actors to play scientists in movies, they're not very believable sometimes. Renner, I could totally believe as a professor. And I think Donnelly is a great side character to Dr. Danks. And I think that he brings, even though it's her movie, he does bring some insight into the, their quest to communicate that does be valuable. 
proving that you need language and science to understand each other. So, Chris, what are your thoughts on Jared Niemeyer and Dr. Donnelly? Well, I will be honest. The first time I heard theoretical physicist, uh, I actually got a little uh, Ian Malcolm vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, Malcolm was not a physicist, but the a lot of the ideas and the idea of being a mathematician and that came in. I'm like, all right, is he going to be this kind of guy, the doubter, the the hip guy? And he really wasn't. This isn't a scientist that's going, no, none of this is possible. Like, this is a guy really open to ideas, but has his reservations. He knows kind of where he wants to play things. I really liked him. He was soft. He was caring. Uh, and he really was the kind of scientist that I like to see. He's not overly obsessed. He's not overly stuck in his ways. He has beliefs and he makes that clear when, you know, you gave the example of where she talks about language being the gay when he said, no, it's science. Clearly he's got that, that understanding. That's his training. <laughs> but Renner does such a good job of towing the line between uh, um, skeptic scientist and yet, uh, unconvinced believer. Yeah, he's like a disciple to Dr. Banks in a way, is what he becomes. Um, what I think is interesting is that, that we know where the story of his character goes. They never show it, but we know where it's going. Look what Dr. Banks tells Hannah, her daughter, about why Dr. Donnelly left because she knew it was coming. We'll get to that in just a minute, but I think that Jeremy Renner is great in this, and I do like to see that he's stepping outside Hawkeye and, and stepping outside comedy to give us a unique and believable character. Adelia, what do you think about Ian Donnelly? I think he's a great character. I think that uh, Chris was spot on with the, you hear theoretical physicist and you think you know what kind of character this is going to be. And then he turns out to be a little different than that. Um, I liked that um, while Louise was starting to really struggle with the the flashbacks, or not flashbacks, they're not flashbacks, the flash, flash forwards, forwards if you will, of, the, um, of her, her daughter and what's happening, he was still there working on all of the the symbols that Abbott gave them right before Abbott died in the explosion. And he's the one that makes the first breakthrough on that mm -hmm. when he picks up how often time is and he theorizes on what that all is, except he sees that there's gaps, there's spaces, it's missing. So he runs some equations and finds out it's only one twelfth of what they need. Yeah, and it's like, it's like the aliens that, have to all be together to be able to give us the information. Yeah, and 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 I found that to be really important to have in this story, because otherwise he's just kind of the side guy that's there and he's doing the the signs with Louise and everything. But it shows how you need both language and science to figure this whole situation out, and. Um, it, we never see the resolution of what all that language the, from uh, Abbott leads to, but I think it's important that that little bit was in there 
Um, and I think he was great. I liked his chemistry with Amy Adams, even though I can understand why people didn't think they had much chemistry at the same mm-hmm. time. It's very subtle. It's well, very, you're very no subtle. Scientists. You're not scientists in their love lives. Yeah, I mean, it's very subtle, and you really don't get any true notification of his interest in her until the very end of the movie That's when true. he says he spent his whole life gazing at the stars but the thing that excited him the most wasn't meeting them it was meeting louise <laughs> and like you know by that point what's going to happen because of seeing louise's flash forwards and everything but um i i just think he was a really good um co-lead if you will in this movie to to louise's character you know, she. Well said. Well said. It, uh, there's another film that was also in this vein that was not uh, looked at very well, but it reminded me of it, especially with Amy Adams. Uh, and that was uh, a Contact in the 90s mm-hmm. with Jodie Foster. That's a good movie. It, yeah, this felt so similar to me, but her character, especially, really felt that way as, as we were going through it. I think Matthew McConaughey was kind of the Jeremy Renner, although there was no love interest at that point between those two. But um, this really gave me those vibes between those two. Like you thought there could be something as we're building and understanding these relationships. Um, And you know what? What's really great is that the relationship that we get between the two of them is really indicative of the overall theme. This idea that we have to work together to be able to change, to grow, to advance, we have to come together. Including um, people of different fields of science. Right. And so the them coming together in the end, but yet in the film, we don't see them to come together. It's a flash forward that we're told that happens. You know? So I really like that. Yeah, we that, see them hugging each other in the port. Well, point. yeah, but I, I, I assumed that was still later on. That wasn't in, in the timeline of, of kind of the now, but anyway. All that aside, Mm -hmm. the development of that relationship fits the overall theme of what humanity has to do, that it's going to take time. We're going to be different. We're going to come from different backgrounds. We have to be willing to listen to each other and change how we speak, ergo change how we think. And so their relationship is a direct correlation and their acting pays into that in dividends. Yes, they're very, yes. (laughs) Yes, I had not thought of that till you just said it, that their relationship correlates to the point of this movie. Uh, one character I want to get to before we get to the, the main star, and that's Hannah, with the name that is a palindrome, mm-hmm. which is also a really interesting little detail. So Hannah, we see played, played by, I think, three different actresses. And we see some scenes that are at a non-zero-sum game in moments like that, and we get the puzzle pieces of what the story is, because the Hannah is like at the center of the story. Really. And we get in the scenes with her. It's when we start getting into the little puzzle pieces that will eventually lead us to the twist can be seen in a lot of the movie but particularly in the bits with Hannah so real quick what do you think about Hannah Adelia? 
I think Hannah's great. Um, I've seen some people call Hannah a plot device. Everything's a plot device in a film. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, true. Um, but uh, I think that even like giving her a, a palindrome for a name. Um, but I think more importantly, um, she symbolizes the choice that Luis makes, which is she knows what's going to happen if she has a baby with Ian and she chooses mm-hmm. to do it anyways, because regardless of what's going to happen, you should enjoy the journey. And I think that's also part of the lesson of dealing with Abbott and Costello is we don't know what's going to happen with them, but the journey of figuring it out is so important and special at the same time. And I, that's one of the things that, that Hannah stands for uh, to me. I think the actresses that played her did a really good job, uh, you know, seeing her as a teenager saying, I hate you. You know, that's a typical yeah, daughter. And, I, and uh, I think that as you learn that she's in the future, she means that much more to the story than she did when she was just, oh, the, the daughter at the beginning that died. She's that's kind of can be used as a throwaway character, even if the character's having flashbacks. But when you realize the importance of that and sort of like the symbolization of she's the product of people coming together to solve this problem uh, that was Abbott and Costello and all the other alien vessels on the planet. Um, that's just that's just interesting to me. It is. Chris, what do you think about Hannah? Yeah, she is a plot device, but I don't see that as a negative. It's not. She is representative of what we're trying to do, and that's coming together and creating a better future. Is that future going to be easy? Is it going to be perfect? No. Are we going to have stumbles and things are going to happen? Absolutely. Life is that way. Life is not perfect. Even if we could somehow achieve world peace, sickness will happen. Disease will happen. These things Mm -hmm. will happen. And how we deal with that and how we approach that is important, but that doesn't mean we stop. And I think that's why she chooses to continue or to have the relationship, to have her knowing what will happen, knowing the risk, knowing that she will hurt him, knowing all of that, that the process before that is too valuable to pass up. It's too important. It absolutely well said. Um, I think I've got more thoughts on Hannah. I'm going to save that till we discuss the themes in the movie. So now we come to the main story. In my opinion, this is Amy Adams' greatest film performance. This is a tour de force. Now, she did not get nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress, which I remember at the time, there was a lot of anger about that. However, she won the National Board of Review Award for Best Actress that year. And she was nominated at the Screen Actors Guild Awards as well. So she definitely got attention for this role, just not from the Oscars, which, well, I don't know what they were thinking that year, but I think this is Amy Adams' career best. And I think that I love the fact that she is a scientist, but she's gentle, but she's kind. He's not one of these, because we see this in movies a lot. And there's nothing wrong with it, but the go-getter kind of girl, the kind of woman who's just abrasive. 
And there's nothing wrong with that kind of character. I just like to see a, a driven woman who is a genius, who is also very down to earth, very calm, very nice, very gentle. I thought that was an absolutely great choice. And I think that Indiana plays every scene with a less is more the Oscars and other award bodies like to award flashy performances. This is an understated performance. It's not big. It's not flashy. It's so caring and loving. And there's so much in her eyes that conveys her acting. But these simple choices and her ability to connect with the aliens because almost out of the sense of human compassion that maybe the military wasn't treating them. You know, she was treating them more like how you would treat another person in a kind and gentle way, not in a not in a military get their guns out kind of thing. Um, so I think that she is the highlight of the film. I think I still am disappointed she didn't get nominated for an Oscar. I think that she really is the standout, and I think that she is able to hold her own in a way, kind of like in the movie that we're going to do on this podcast soon, which is Matt Damon in The Martian. Now, his performance is much bigger than hers. So the one-man show aspect of it. Amy Adams is like a one-woman show and then he starts this movie. And she nails it. And I think when all is said and done, she's the highlight of the film. Uh, Chris, what do you think about Amy Adams in this film? I loved her. Understated is perfectly described because the character is understated. She plays it understated. Um, I, Which is probably I, why that we thought she was in mourning at the beginning of the film. Yeah, I know, and that's what I thought, and that that's how they played it, and I like that. I love that aspect of it. She's got so much gravitas to play with. I absolutely love her. I haven't seen her do another role with this much power since and mind you again i hadn't seen this until now um hillbilly elegy i loved her in that i thought again you know very much in the same vein american hustle um the when she has a chance to play dramatic she is so good at it because she normally she's also a very comedic actress and she does that very well mm-hmm. and we yeah I, even her as lois lane yeah I love her as Lois Lane in Man of Steel and and in in the Justice League movies. Like, she just plays it well. Uh, She was the best choice for this. Really, I can't imagine someone else, not even like Jennifer Lawrence, you know, who you would think would fit here. I can't imagine. No. No, well, that, and I buy her as a linguist. I buy her as a professor. Don't buy (laughs) Dilla. She's totally believable as a smart person. Yeah, a, a professor. You believe it, one hundred percent. And and to put it in comparison to this was twenty sixteen. Yes. Yes, it was. So so just to to put that out there, 
I mean, the idea of her being nominated, which I think it should have been nominated. That's my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's going up against some tough calls in those categories at that time. And the fact that she wasn't nominated doesn't say anything against it. I no, don't I think mean, so. It's so we had Emma Stone and Lola Lynn. Yeah. She won the Oscar. Isabel yeah. Darren L. And Natalie Portman and Jackie. Loving. Yeah. And, Jackie. and then Meryl Streep. And Meryl Streep and Florence Foster Jenkins. Those were fabulous, powerful roles. And I mean, if I could commit a little blasphemy, go ahead. I would replace Meryl Streep with Amy Adams on this list. I wouldn't. But I... That's not an insult to Meryl Streep. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. That's me. I loved Florence Foster Jenkins. I really, really did. And it takes a lot to play that kind of a character. And as you said, that's true. The Oscars love having someone a little over the top, you know, and definitely a lot of this plays that even Jackie in her own way is, is very much this over the top piece of, of Americana and history. Um, I didn't see loving and I did not see Elle, but I did see Emma in La La Land. And I, you know, of course I saw Jackie and Boris Foster, but the point is that was tough company. Yeah, tough, true. tough, tough company. And I thought she would have deserved a nomination, at least if she had it. Uh, so, you know, that that just goes to show it how tough it was that year. But it's not a slight against her in any way. And I'm sure that she was on the short list. Yeah. And Amy has got six nominations. So she's going to basically turn into the Leonardo DiCaprio. If you just give her her Oscar already. Is she going to have to eat a horse's leather just to win an Oscar? <laughs> apparently we all had to mm. Adelia what do you think about Amy Adams in this film she's phenomenal this is my favorite Amy Adams performance I think she's so so good in this movie Um, I can't believe she wasn't nominated for this Uh, I, I basically echo everything you guys have said Um, she just the understated way she portrays Louise just works perfectly not even just for the us think tricking us into thinking she's in mourning for her daughter still but just for the seriousness of the whole situation like if she was you know more uh bubbly and cracking jokes and stuff that would not work for this movie so i think the way that they they portrayed louise it was just fabulous and um she did a great job yeah yeah well said and i think that any but sometimes when you and we've seen this in movies, when actress is playing a scientist, you go, yeah, right. You know, usually has the glasses with her hair up in a bun and glasses. Still take out the glasses, let the hair down. Christmas yeah. Jones. Christmas yeah. Jones. Chris, well, I can't repeat what I was just about to say, but her <laughs> catchphrase in that movie, I can't say it. But Amy is totally believable as a scientist. And as a professor, I kind of wish she was my professor. I would have loved him to take on a linguistics class. Uh, which is really cool. Um, I think that Amy is continues to impress mm-hmm. us. And she is capable of so much range. We've seen her play totally nutty characters. We've seen her play a kind of a naive princess. 
He's still gonna play Lois Lane. He's still gonna play. She made playing off of Muppets look good. Yes, you got it. So, in other words, any other thing could do no wrong right now. This, I think, for me, is her death performance. And I hope that someday she does win an Oscar. Yes, I think she's on that level. All right. So, that's the characters. So, let's talk about the screenplay. This is adapted from the Nebula Award-winning novella, Story of Your Life by Ted Chang. Uh, this was nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay and won the Writers Guild Award for Best Adapted Screenplay by uh, the writer's name is Eric Hesserer. I don't know how to say his name. He adapted the novel. Um, really is a great script. I think that we've mentioned that there might be a couple of moments that maybe don't 100% work. Whether it be General Shane talking to her, whether it be some of the lines of dialogue, particularly from Ian Donnelly can be a little corny. But overall, it starts because the screenplay is also where we get kind of the structure of the movie. And on that level, the way this movie is structured, the way this movie is elliptical, the way this movie tricks you by putting scenes out of order, um, because Louise thinks out of order. Uh, later in the film, it really is an extraordinary piece of writing, and I'm glad it run the Writers Guild Award. And I think it is one of the most genius sci-fi screenplays I can think of. Adelia, what are your thoughts on the screenplay? I totally agree. the The structure of this is just phenomenal. Yeah, there's a moment or two or a line or two that doesn't work, but I mean, no script is a hundred percent perfect. No. Um, this is is one of the most uh genius ways of scripting a film that I've seen in a, a very long time, and um to make that twist work, everything else has to work as far as the structure of how they place the the flash forwards and things, and and I think that 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 is just great. So the the writer did a really good job. Well said, and and also the screenplay is what puts those little like breadcrumbs. When you know the twist and you go back and you watch it again, you go, uh-huh. I see where they were leading. The little hints they were dropping left and right. That You see, the, our friends, the cinephiles, John Roca and Steve Morris, talk about the importance of the proper plant and payoff. If your plant is way too obvious, then you didn't do it right. If the plant is subtle and you don't pick on it, pick up on it, at least not in a, it doesn't like dash you over the head. Um, and then you go back and watch again, you go, oh, I see what they did there. That's a good plant and payoff because you didn't notice it until you knew what the twist was. Um, 
which is great. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on the screenplay? It, I, I think we, we agree that, yeah, it's got some flaws here. Part of the, the, the fight that this was going to have was that in 2014, Interstellar came out. And there are a lot of thematic mm. similarities between yeah. this and Interstellar. Um, and so when Interstellar came out, the ending and everything that we got, the, the basic kind of premise that we got in here of language being the weapon was not the original treatment and was not what was in the original book. Mm. Um, it was going to be very different. We were going to get, uh, I believe it was plans to a ship that would allow us in in 3,000 years to go to them and help them. A little, a little bit of like context. A little bit yeah, more. a little bit of that. Um, but when Interstellar came out, they said, no, we can't do that. That's too close to Interstellar in a way. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. And yet I really feel that while the, again, the premise of using language, genius, bold move, I still think there are a lot of comparisons they're making from Interstellar. And they're really kind of playing off that a little bit. Now, is it bad? Not in any means. Is it hacked? Does it deserve the recognition of God? Absolutely. But I do feel that it was, uh, it does suffer just a little bit from coming after Interstellar and having to distance itself from that. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mention that because Interstellar, in my opinion, is, is a pretty good movie. Mm -hmm. I think its biggest flaw is its screenplay. Um, it's got too much talking, too much philosophy, too much of the characters yapping about the meaning of life. Instead of just letting the audience do it, this movie takes the opposite. And says, so let's let the audience talk about that. So yeah, there are similarities, but I think that whereas Interstellar was being very heavy-handed with its screenplay, because the screenplay of Arrival is particularly the dialogue is more on the simple side, it invites the audience to come in and start talking about what it needs. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a good screen when it can do that. So uh, any further thoughts on the screenplay before we move on? Nah. Oh, okay, now let's talk about themes. Uh, we talked about them a bit. Now, if there are some big themes here, but I wanted to talk about one of the minor themes. Actually, it's not minor, it's a little major. It's the theme of inevitability. You know, we all know that we're going to die. We all know that we're going to get sick sometimes. We all know that we're going to lose friends and family. You know, in the case of our friend Garth, we all kind of knew that his end was, was coming. And yet we live life even knowing the end from the beginning. Because we find meaning in the journey. Dr. Banks says at the beginning of the movie, I used to believe this was the beginning of your story. And then at the end says, I don't think I believe in beginnings and endings. It's, it's as, as we said at the top of the show, it's about perspective. It's about the fact we all know the inevitability of things in life. 
and yet we choose to live because living is found in in the journey and i think that that's really the message here beyond anything else is that is that even though we know the end we choose to live because that's where we find the joy of existence so, uh, any thoughts about that one that particular theme chris we'll start with you um i could see that i can see that interpretation but more than that, for me, I see this movie's theme as being a call for change and a willingness to change mm -hmm. the mind. Because the whole idea here is that they say the language, once you understand the language, that it's going to change your entire perception of the universe and how things work. You know, and, and I'd like to put it in Star Trek terms. The world changed when we had warp drive. It, when we know from first contact that once warp drive happened, it opened Earth up to many possibilities. New knowledge changed everything. And here it was about that, too, that if we are to change, we have to be willing to make big, bold changes and change how we think and how we see things. And once we can do that and it uses language as its vessel, which I like, then we can change. So I, I think to me, that was the major focus here was the idea and a warning yeah. to mankind that we have to change. And in order to change, you need to shift how you see things and how you perceive things. That is definitely the big theme here. And I think it's very well executed. Um, the theme, and because I love exploring the themes in movies. Certainly we can look at what's on the surface. I think the true enjoyment of art comes from um, examining the themes. What is it saying about existence? What is it saying about what it means to be human? What is it saying about the possibilities of the universe? Adelia, what is the theme that really stands out to you from this film? <clears throat> um, it's the, the two that you guys have just talked about. Uh, changing your mind and opening up possibilities by gathering knowledge and uh, inevitability and enjoying life for what it is, no matter what the outcome might be. I think those are the two uh, biggest themes uh, of the movie. And I think they hit both of them really, really well. Um, I think that it's shown in Louise's choice to take the knowledge that she's learned of what's going to happen to her daughter, but still live life and have her daughter and go through that journey and all the happy moments with her, even though it's going to bring her pain in the end. And that brings those two themes, even though she knows it, that brings those two themes really together in one poignant moment. And and that that's one of my favorite moments in the movie because of it. I think that that's really what got me crying. I, yeah. I, I cried a lot watching this movie last time. Probably because of our friend Garth. And I've lost some other people throughout the last year. That that theme, that idea of choosing to live despite knowing your fate is 
what struck me emotionally the hardest. And with the loss of my friend Garth, it really, I think, hit me even harder because of the journey that we've had with Garth. As our friend, we all kind of knew on his help that eventually he would no longer be with us. Um, and yet the joy was down in the journey with him as a friend. Um, and I think that as we get toward our last couple of points here, we dedicate this episode to Garth uh, because of what this movie meant to us this last week. So the last thing I wanted, well, there's two things. One is the musical score. Um, a very interesting musical score used in this film. Very minimalist. Um, by the late Johan Johansson, uh, who is a genius. And I'm so glad that even though he's no longer with us, um, his score for this movie was so pretty and eerie and used weird like 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 whale sounds and other weird like to give it a truly alien feel. When they're in the helicopter approaching the spaceship, only is that scene visually stunning. The music in that scene is ominous. It's weird. It's alien. It's, it's all sound, but the score. And that happens a few times in the film. It's a minimalist score. It uses um, a pre-existing piece in the opening and closing by the modern composer Max Richter. And the piece is called On the Nature of Daylight. Um, because of the heavy use of this piece, the movie was deemed ineligible for the Oscar, the best original score, despite whether it got, the, the fact they didn't get nominated, it's still a great score. It really creates the mood of the movie. And music scores, that's really what they're for. Really, it, what is the mood we're trying to create here? And it creates like a 2001 Space Odyssey, um, Solaris, and this weird out there kind of score. Well, Adelia, what did you think about the music? This is one of my favorite uh, film scores to listen to. I listen to it a lot. Mm. Um, I think Johan Johansson did a fantastic job with it. And you're right, it complements the mood of the movie so so well and it's just really really phenomenal i i understand why it didn't get nominated for the oscar but the use of the max richter song i think also makes it um just elevate that much more because that song by max richter is so beautiful in its own right um i if it all fits what they're trying to do with this movie and there's no big you know, bombastic piece that distracts you from the scene or anything like that. It's it's subtle, it's minimalistic, but it it's very fitting and it's it's beautiful. 
Yes, I absolutely 100% agree. I also think that the the skill in doing a movie score is knowing when not to use music. Mm-hmm. And there are some users that don't use music that don't work because they don't. If they had used music, it wouldn't work. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on the musical score to this film? So, I like the score. But I will say, I like when there's no score even more. There are so many moments in this film that use the music, and the music is good, don't get me wrong, but it's when it's quiet and there's no music that really allows us to focus on the tension of the moment. We don't have music to guide us, to give us those cues. Music is so important to telling us how we should be feeling in a moment. To not have music is daring and bold. And so both from a directorial standpoint, as well as the composer, because you can't tell me that he didn't have a say in, you know, maybe we shouldn't have something here or when we mm-hmm. should. That grateful, graceful touch is what I love the most. I compared this earlier to a little bit of a Kubrick film, and it reminds me of a Kubrick film in that Kubrick knew when to have music and when not to. 2001 mm-hmm. does this so yeah. well. And this is why it reminds me of 2001. It lets the silent moments be silent and lets you culminate your feelings on your own. It doesn't tell you. It lets you be smart. I adore that about this film. But when it does play the music, it does guide it well. It is memorable. It it has those those tones of like whale sounds and a little bit of 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 um close encounters. Um, it's got influences left and right from so much science fiction. Even a little uh, bit you know, of, of the Hans Zimmer from the Interstellar. Yeah, I, I, and you, you can't help it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fabulous score. This is this is a masterclass, and um, I don't know if we're gonna hit on it, but also not just musically, thematically, editing as well. The sound yes. editing, the physical which it, editing. Which it did win an Oscar for it, thank goodness. Everything in editing in this film was just spot on fabulous. And you can have a great score, but unless you have somebody working those sounds in and that 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 mm-hmm. uh music that. in with the story beats, it doesn't work. This is a team effort here, and and bravo to all of them. I agree, Chris. The editing is is phenomenal in this movie. It builds the tension well. It's uh, knowing right when to cut to the the flash forwards and and the sound of the flash forward that you get before you see the flash forward is is really really phenomenal. Yep. Um, and and that brings us then to our last topic: is spectacle. Uh, the cinematography in this film, which it did. Which received an Oscar nomination for it. It's like Bradford Young, who recently photographed solo Star Wars story. And more recently, The Batman. Which I think contains some of the greatest cinematography in the last few years. Um, the visual look of the film, I think, is fantastic. The visual effects are minimalistic. I think they used real helicopters in some of those Rodney scenes. And the aliens and the spaceships look so real. 
uh, that's how I think CGI is best used when it's used minimally or used in a more discreet way. So visually, the editing, the sound, the visual presentation and visual effects are all extraordinary in this film. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts? It's it's so well put together. All of it. This is this is what you want of an example of something that is understated in all of its ways and is is more than the sum of its parts. When you put everything together, it just blows you away. I I didn't know what to expect going into this because I hadn't seen it. And having everything together, I love I wish I had saw this in the big screen. And if it ever returns, even you know, local showings or you know, I will go watch this on the big screen because I think it deserves that level of spectacle. It was great on my computer watching it when I when we bought it from Amazon. Um, but I've gotta hope that on the screen with surround sound and everything and all of the elements together in the way it was meant to be seen, uh, this would just blow me away. It's an absolutely gorgeous looking film. The cinematography is fabulous. Um, everything about it is so great. Um, I didn't see it on the big screen either. I've only ever seen it on my TV. But um, yeah, it, it just looks, looks cool so screen, good. I, I bet it was amazing in the theater. And I'm with Chris. If they ever re-release it, I'm going to find a way to go see it. Because this is... A, a phenomenal uh, film that I wish I had experienced in the theater. Very well said. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our discussion on the rival. Um, let me, Adelia, what are your final thoughts on this film? Um, I think this is one of my favorite movies uh, of the last 20 years. I think it's my favorite movie of the 2010s. Um, it's a absolutely phenomenal film that I could rewatch over and over and over and find something new that I missed the first time um, and haven't noticed before. It, it gets you emotionally. It gets the, you, you know, with tension and anxiety at points. Um, it's just very, very well put together. And thank you guys so much for having me on to talk about it. Well, thank you for your thoughts and you're very, very welcome to come and join us. Uh, Chris, what are your final thoughts on this film? This was a surprise. This isn't the normal sci-fi film I watch, so this was a pleasure to have, and I I really appreciate us getting a film where it's not all about we're being attacked, we're being attacked, let's kill them. It is very nice to have something that is more subdued and and uh, reflective of the human condition. And how we need to grow and change, which when we talk about Star Trek happens all the time. We talk about the ideas and the themes in Star Trek that allow us to reflect on ourselves. This movie does that. This movie allows us to look and go, we have to change. We have to grow without hitting you over the head with it. Mm -hmm. It's clever. It's well done. It's well edited. Uh, this is right up there. Uh, I'm going to buy a physical copy. I don't have a physical copy. I don't have digital, but I like it that much that I want to get a physical copy too. So it's fabulous. And I would recommend this to anyone, even if you're not a sci-fi fan, 
this is a really good movie. Really, really, really good and worth your time. Yes, well said. So the film was nominated at the 89th Academy Awards for eight Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. It won the Oscar for Best Sound Editing, rightly so, I think. I believe that this is a masterpiece. Um, I don't throw out that turn very often. This is a five out of five star film. For me, this is the, the pinnacle. This is one of the best things that sci fi has to offer. And it represents what sci fi can be at its peak. And not just sci fi, this is a great film, which I believe and I hope that in 30, 40, 50 years, People will remember this as one of the great films of the 2010s. It is one of my favorite films of all time. It is an extraordinary piece of cinema that uses the language of cinema in a way that I have not seen done as well. In, in not a lot of films, I think, fall into that ballpark of what this film is able to accomplish. This is why Denis Villeneuve is one of the greatest filmmakers living and working today. And I think that if you have not seen this film, I cannot recommend it enough. This is one of the most extraordinary films of the last 20 years, and I hope that it is remembered as a cinematic masterpiece for years to come. So that brings us to the end of the rival. Adelia, thank you for joining us today. Where can thank people you find me. you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter or X or whatever the app is named this week at Adelia Chambo. You can also <laughs> find me on the Let's Get Ready Network. Um, we have two channels. One channel is an entertainment channel. I'm on there every Friday at 8 p.m. Pacific uh, with Ferris Muthana doing the open table. It's our dinner party-esque long-form discussion uh, show. And I'm on the highlights, LGR and the highlights channel every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Pacific with our buddy Snark talking about the English Premier League on Starting 11. Awesome. You can all find me at Renan Mystical on X. Running more on Blue Sky, running blue at threads and Instagram, and you can follow this podcast. Random track under the umbrella page turners, they were not. So you can find on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast. And I turn it back over to you, Captain Eagle. Thank you so much. I, I would say that was a flawless uh, uh, taking over the ship. I may have you do it more often. <laughs> I'd be glad to. But uh, we got a we got a randomizer here. We've got to randomize and find out what we're watching next week. Right. Uh, it's Labor Day weekend next week, so the random. Okay, here we go. Let's let's hit the randomizer. See what happens. All right, real we're, real morality. Turn turn turn. We have the original series. Ooh, ooh, oh my heart. Trouble with tribbles. Yes. 
I all right. Yes. It's Labor Day weekend, so let's let's give them a special if you don't mind. Let's do Trouble with Tribbles and then DS9's Trial and Tribulations together. Yes. You got to do it. Uh, yes. All right, we'll do a double feature next week. The Trouble with Tribbles, season two, episode 15 of the original series and the anniversary special that was done in honor of Star Trek, uh, Deep Space Nine's Trials and Tribulations, a great one-two combo for comedy. Mm -hmm. All right, well, as we end every episode, kapla, and live long and prosper. Peace and long life.